Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, We are continuing on in our study of church history. Um, In fact, we are uh, picking up the story where Pastor Kyle left off uh, a couple years ago. Um, Pastor Kyle, while he was teaching us uh, church history in our Sunday school hour, uh, took us up to about this time in church history to the Council of Nicaea. And uh, the last six or seven months or so, we've been kind of... uh, Revisiting that, that period of history, giving everybody an opportunity to, to go back and to uh, listen to those old messages if you wanted to, to kind of get more context uh, for what's happening in the first 300 years. A very important period of time in church history. But today is the day we actually pick up the story and we, we start pressing on. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, we'll open up with a reading from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Here the scripture reads, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Amen. And uh, keeping with our, with our custom, at the beginning of our uh, church history study, I'd like to open us up with a prayer, a historic prayer that's taken from the time period. I confess I had, uh, I had some difficulty this time, uh, finding a prayer that uh, comes from this time period. Um, I, I was looking up prayers of St. Athanasius, and Google kept giving me results for prayers to St. Athanasius, and... Uh, we don't do that here. Um, so I am having to go a little bit beyond our, our current period that we're studying. Uh, this is a prayer taken from the writings of St. Augustine, uh, who lived about 100 years after the Council of Nicaea. But nonetheless, let us, let us turn now in prayer to our great God. Grant, O God, of your mercy, that we may come to everlasting life And there, beholding thy glory as it is, may equally say, Glory to the Father who created us. Glory to the Son who redeemed us. Glory to the Holy Spirit who sanctified us. Glory to the Most High and Undivided Trinity, whose works are inseparable, whose kingdom without end abides from age to age forever. Amen. Well, the... The Gospels tell us of a, a particular day when Christ called his disciples to himself, and he asked them a question. He said to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they gave their answers. Uh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Christ not being content with what others have to say about who he is, he turns to his disciples, to his church, and he asks them, but you, who do you say that I am? We know Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know Thomas's answer. As he was confronted with the reality of the resurrection, he says to the risen Christ, My Lord and my God. In fact, every generation of believers must answer the question, Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? What is his relationship to Yahweh, the God of Israel? 
And once that question has been answered, that answer must be shared and it must be defended. Well, in the fourth century, a new answer was given to that question. An answer that no one had given before to the effect that Jesus was a creature. That there was a time when he was not. And that answer so electrified the world that it demanded a response. And respond the church did at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. At the beginning of the fourth century, we see the Roman Empire divided between east and west, each half governed by its own emperor. But by the year 312, Constantine had gained the mastery over the west to become the first Christian Roman emperor. Twelve years later, in the year 324, he defeats his rival Licinius in the east to once again reunite east and west under one unified government, helmed by one solitary ruler. Unity was a big deal for Constantine. So you can imagine how defeated he must have felt to find the churches in his newly acquired eastern provinces bitterly divided. And the cause of that division a theological controversy between Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, and one of his presbyters, a man named Arius. Tensions flared up between the two a few years earlier, around the year 318, when Alexander caught wind that one of his presbyters was teaching a new and strange doctrine to the effect that Christ was a creature. Alexander called his presbyter to account, petitioned him to agree to an orthodox confession of faith, and when Arius and his supporters, which by now included a couple of bishops, when Arius and his supporters refused, Alexander called together a synod of local bishops, which proceeded to excommunicate them. Well, Arius fled Alexandria and sought refuge among close friends that he had in the east. Arius um, was at one time a student of the famed presbyter and martyr Lucian of Antioch, so he appealed to his fellow co-lucianists, as he called them, for support. Chief among them was a man named Eusebius of Nicomedia, not to be confused with Eusebius of Caesarea. He's the church historian. This is a different Eusebius. One guy has said that if you throw a rock in the ancient world, you're more than likely going to hit a Eusebius. There's so many Eusebiuses, you have to distinguish. But we have a letter that Arius sent to Nicomedia explaining from his perspective what had unfolded. And I have an excerpt of that letter for you um, provided in your handout so that you can follow along. The letter of Arius to Eusebius of Nicomedia. Arius writes this, To that most beloved man of God, the faithful and orthodox Eusebius, from Arius, unjustly persecuted by Father Alexander because of the all-conquering truth which you, Eusebius, are also defending. Since my father Ammonius is going to Nicomedia, it seemed reasonable and proper to greet you through him, remembering at the same time the innate love and affection which you have for the brothers on account of God and his Christ. Because the bishop, talking about Alexander, is severely ravaging and persecuting us and moving against us with every evil. But what do we say and think? And what have we previously taught and do we presently teach? He answers, that the Son is not unbegotten, nor a part of an unbegotten entity in any way, nor from anything in existence, 
but that he is subsisting in will and intention before time and before the ages, full of grace and truth, God, the only begotten, unchangeable. Before he was begotten, or created, or defined, or established, he did not exist. For he was not unbegotten. But we are persecuted because we have said the Son has a beginning, but God has no beginning. We are persecuted because of that and for saying he came from non-being. But we said this since he is not a portion of God nor of anything in existence. That is why we are persecuted. You know the rest. I pray that you fare well in the Lord, remembering our tribulations, fellow Lucianists, truly called Eusebius. The name Eusebius means pious one. Well, this is a good point to pause and to consider what exactly was Arius teaching that led to these turn of events. Well, we can summarize Arianism in these essential points. First, Arius taught that God was not always Father, that he was once in a situation in which he was simply God and not Father. There was a time, before time, if that makes any sense, when God was not Father, and he became Father through the begetting of his Son. This solitariness of God is essential to Arius. Elsewhere, he emphatically declares, we acknowledge one God, speaking of the Father, alone unbegotten, alone everlasting, alone without beginning, alone true, alone having immortality, alone wise, alone good, alone sovereign, judge, governor, and provider of all, unalterable and unchangeable. Second, the Son is a creature God made him out of non-existence. Now, Arius would seriously qualify this creature language. Jesus is a super awesome creature, the best creature, the creature through whom all other creatures were created. But, nonetheless, he is a creature. He does not share in the eternal essence of God. He is not related to God by nature, but he is related to him as a created being. Third, the Son is changeable by nature, but remains stable by the gift of God. In his letter to Eusebius, Arius says of Christ that he is unchangeable. But he doesn't mean that Jesus is immutable in the same way that God the Father is immutable. Instead, as a creature that possesses a free will, he is able to change from good to bad, if he so wills. Alexander, in his examination of some of the Arians, he makes this observation. Someone asked them whether the word of God could turn to evil like the devil has. And they were not afraid to answer. Yes, he could. Since he is begotten, his nature is able to change. The reason why he doesn't change is because God in his grace looked down the corridor of time, seeing the Son's goodness, and therefore he has elected the Son to be unchangeable. Hear this. Jesus is who he is, according to Arius, not by nature, but by grace. Fourth, the Son is foreign from the divine being and distinct. He is not true God because he came into existence. Now, Arius was fully ready to ascribe deity to the Son. Jesus is the begotten God. He is a God. But he is not divine in the same sense or to the same degree as the Father. 
Arius makes the assumption that because Jesus is begotten, he must be made. Begetting and creating for Arius are identical. Now, we, we understand how begetting works, right? Maybe we don't understand how begetting works. Maybe that's why we have so many children here at Bethany. We don't understand why does this keep happening? But we understand how it works, right? You've got a guy, meets a girl, falls in love, they get married, things happen, and they beget a child. Arius is stretching that language, not even to its extreme, because he would admit that in this whole begetting of the son, there is no mother god involved, right? There's no womb in the, in the picture. Um, but he's making the case that if Jesus is begotten, well, he was not before he was begotten. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, um, Arius... Uh, I've lost my place in my outline here. Arius... Um, Arius and his supporters, they would run out to, to the marketplace and they would find the first matronly woman that they could find. A very dangerous game, by the way. Find the first matronly looking woman they could find and say, excuse me, ma'am, did you have a child before you begot the child? So they're, they're, the reasoning there is, well, if the son of God was begotten, he could not have been before he was begotten. Um, there was a time when the son was not. Fifth, the son's knowledge of the father is limited. The father is invisible to the son. For the word neither knows the father perfectly and accurately, nor can he see him perfectly. There are aspects of the father's being that is unknown to the son. The son only knows what the Father chooses to reveal to the Son. And sixth, finally, to sum up Arius' teaching, there is a trinity of dissimilar persons. Arius was fully ready to acknowledge Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they are unlike in their essence. If we are to speak of the three being one, it is only to be in moral terms a unity of will and disposition. They want the same things. They agree on what's right and what's wrong. That's, that's what we mean when we say, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and nothing more than that. They are not one in essence. Well, this is uh, essentially what Arius was teaching. He laid all this out in a work called the Thalia, or the banquet in Greek, now, the Thalia was unique in that it was written in lyrical verse. Arius was quite the poet. And this feature of his theology did wonders for Arian propaganda. Athanasius refers to it as songs for sailors and mill workers. And sing they did. These Arian hymns would become very popular in Alexandria. Well, Eusebius of Nicomedia not only welcomes Arius... But he so much took up the baton of Arius' cause that before long, the Arians were being referred to as the party of Eusebius. He led the effort to encourage other bishops to petition Alexander against his treatment of the Arians, and he was instrumental in calling together other local synods that vindicated the orthodoxy of Arius' teaching. So you had dual councils, dual synods that going on, saying, coming to different, very different conclusions. Alexander was being pressured by this rising support for his exiled presbyter. He felt obligated to publish abroad the reasons for this excommunication. And he does so in a letter addressed to his fellow bishops where he lays out the charges against Arius details their false teachings, and then he offers a response to them. And again, I've provided um, a snippet of that letter for you in your handout so you can follow along. This is what um, Alexander writes. We then assembled with almost 100 bishops of Egypt and Libya, 
have anathematized these things that were said by the group around Arius and those who have shamefully followed along with them. Thus, Eusebius's group has welcomed them and tried to blend falsehood with truth and impiety with what is sacred. But they will not succeed, for the truth must triumph, and light has no fellowship with darkness, nor can Christ be harmonized with Belial. For who ever heard such things? Or who that hears it now is not astonished and does not plug his ears to stop himself from hearing such filthy expressions? Who that hears John saying, in the beginning was the word, does not condemn those who say there was a time when the word did not exist? Or who, hearing in the gospel of the only begotten Son, and that through him all things were made, will not hate those who proclaim that the Son is one of the things that were made? How can he be one of the things which were made through himself? Or how can he be the only begotten if he is reckoned among such created things? And how could he come into existence from nothing when the Father has said, my heart has spewed out a good word? And I begot you from the womb before the morning star. Or how can he be unlike the Father in essence when he is the perfect image and radiant glory of the Father? And says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Again, how if the Son is the word and wisdom of God, could there be a time when he did not exist? That is equivalent to their saying that God was once without the word and without wisdom. How can one be mutable and susceptible of change who says of himself, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and I and the Father are one. And again through the prophet, look at me, because I am, and I have not changed. If someone can use this expression of the Father himself, it would be even more fittingly spoken concerning the word, because he was not changed when he became man. But as the apostle says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So who could persuade them to say that he was made on our account when Paul wrote that for him and through him all things exist? One need not wonder at their blasphemous assertion that the Son does not perfectly know the Father. For once they decided to fight against Christ, they reject also his own voice when he says, As the Father knows me, even so. I know the Father. But if the Father only partially knows the Son, it is clear that the Son can only partially know the Father. But if it would be improper to say this, and if the Father does perfectly know the Son, it is also clear that just as the Father knows His own Word, so also the Word knows His own Father, whose Word He is. We have also made it clear to your pious minds, beloved and most honored fellow servants, that you should not welcome any of these men if they hurriedly approach you, nor be persuaded to receive any letter in their defense from Eusebius or anyone else. It is proper for us who are Christians to turn away from all those who speak or reason against Christ, since they are resisting God and destroyers of souls. Nor are we even to greet such men, so that we never are made partakers in their sin, as the blessed John instructed. Give greetings to the brothers with you. Those with me greet you. Well, with Arius' position being bolstered by the support of his friends, chaos was unleashed in the cities of the East. Men and women women, rioted in the streets amidst shouts of, there was when he was not, and always father, always son. Rival councils, as we've already explored, continued to be held, issuing their own excommunications. Even Eusebius of Caesarea 
regarded by most as the smartest man alive during the time. Even he was tentatively excommunicated because of his support of Arius. Well, enough was enough. Constantine refused to sit back and watch the unity that he had fought so long and hard for crumble to pieces amidst these quarreling theological factions. So he writes a letter to Alexander and Arius. And again, I have included this for you in your handout. The victor Constantine the Great, Augustus, to Alexander and Arius. I call God to witness, as is fitting, who is the helper of my endeavors and the preserver of all men, that I had a twofold reason for undertaking this duty which I have now performed. My design then was first to bring the various beliefs formed by all nations about God to a condition of settled uniformity. So when I found that an intolerable spirit of mad folly had overcome the whole of Africa through the influence of those who with heedless frivolity had presumed to divide the religion of the people into diverse sects, I was anxious to stop the course of this disorder. I understand that the origin of the present controversy is this. When you, Alexander, demanded of the priests what opinion they each maintained respecting a certain passage in Scripture, or rather, I should say, that you asked them something connected with an unprofitable question, you then, Arius, inconsiderately insisted on what ought never to have been speculated about at all, or if pondered, should have been buried in profound silence. Now, I I put a pause here um, because I would like to open this up for us uh, just a little bit. The passage that Constantine is probably referring to is Proverbs chapter 8. If you want to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8, And locate verse 22. This is a passage that was a favorite for the Arians. Uh, Here in this passage, wisdom personified speaks. And this is what wisdom says in Proverbs 8, beginning at verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. So everyone reading this passage in the ancient world, everyone acknowledged that Christ is the wisdom of God. Paul says so uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Christians, for as long as they had been reading their Bibles, understood that wisdom personified in Proverbs is the voice of Christ. Well, Arius pointed to this passage and took from it these concepts from Proverbs 8, that the wisdom is possessed by God established, brought forth. That is what it means that the Son was begotten. Before he was begotten, he was not. But Alexander would point to the very same passage, which he fully agreed speaks of Christ and his relationship to the Father. And he would say, see, this is an eternal relationship. The proverb says, I have been established from everlasting. When was God dumb and without his wisdom? When was God mute and without his word? When was God weak and without his power? But if Christ is the wisdom, the word, the power of God, then he must be from eternity. 
There never was when the Son was not. Well, Constantine, Constantine continues in the letter. He says, Hence it was that a dissension arose between you, fellowship was withdrawn, and the holy people were rent into diverse factions, no longer preserving the unity of the one body. Now forgive one another for both the careless question and the ill-considered answer. As long as you continue to contend about these small and very insignificant questions, it is not fitting that so large a portion of God's people should be under the direction of your judgment, since you are thus divided between yourselves. In my opinion, it is not merely unbecoming, but positively evil that such should be the case. Should the honorable synod be torn in two by profane disunion because of you who wrangle together on points so trivial and altogether unessential? This is vulgar and more characteristic of childish ignorance than consistent with the wisdom of priests and sensible men. Let us withdraw ourselves with a good will from these temptations of the devil. Our great God and our common Savior has granted us all the same light. Permit me, who am his servant, to successfully bring my task to conclusion under the direction of his providence, that I may be enabled through my exhortations, diligence, and earnest warning to recall his people to communion and fellowship. He says, Restore me then my quiet days and untroubled nights, that the joy of undimmed light, the delight of a tranquil life, may be my portion from here on. Otherwise, I will be forced to mourn with constant tears, and I will not be able to pass the remainder of my days in peace, while the people of God, whose fellow servant I am, are so divided among themselves by an unreasonable and wicked spirit of contention, how is it possible that I shall be able to maintain a tranquil mind? So open for me by your unity of judgment that road to the regions of the east which your dissensions have closed to me. And permit me speedily to see you and all other peoples rejoicing together. Well, Constantine's attitude in this whole situation, it's very modern, isn't it? Doctrine divides. Alexander and Arius, you two should just kiss and make up and get along so you can get back to doing things that are really important. Well, is he right? Is this theological controversy worth all of this? The dueling councils with their excommunications, the rioting in the streets... I mean, you guys agree on so much already. You both believe that Jesus is the Son of God, begotten before all ages. You're both even willing to say that Jesus is God in your own way. Does this really matter? Well, the fathers understood that all of life is Trinitarian. Creation is Trinitarian. The work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is Trinitarian. Peter speaks of our election being according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We enter the church through baptism in the Trinitarian name. The church's mission, defined by the Great Commission, is Trinitarian. For 300 years, the church had been baptizing in the triune name, blessing in the triune name, singing hymns of praise to the triune God, lifting up prayers to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit long before the Arian controversy forced the church to deeply consider the language they ought to use to describe the Trinity. 
In short, if Christ is not God, then he cannot bring us to God and mediate the divine grace that we need in order to be reconciled with our maker. For Arius, Jesus was the great servant of God, the great teacher, our great example. But us wretched sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, we don't need a teacher. We don't need an example. We need a savior who can bring us to God. And if Christ is a mutable creature in need of grace, just as we are, then he cannot be a savior. If we get this doctrine wrong, we forfeit the gospel. The church understood that. So Constantine's pleas for unity fell on deaf ears. So the bishops of the empire were summoned to a grand council at the city of Nicaea to settle the controversy once and for all. At least that's what they had hoped. Christians had been gathering in local councils and synods for as long as there had been Christians. We read about the Jerusalem council, for instance, in Acts chapter 15. But never had a council been convened by the call of a Roman emperor. All expenses paid by the imperial coffers, travel, lodging, meals, bishops came from far and wide. Never had the church from, from all over the world met together to settle a controversy. Councils were usually local affairs. Nicaea is thus regarded as the first of the ecumenical councils. Ecumenical meaning uh, worldwide. Um, and just as an aside, how many ecumenical councils have there been? That depends on who you ask. Uh, Roman Catholics say there have been 21. Uh, the latest being Vatican II in the middle of the last century. Uh, Eastern Orthodox will say there have been seven. Most Reformed and Lutheran churches uh, generally regard the first four councils as being particularly significant in shaping the church's tradition. And so we'll consider those uh, in due time. Well, despite Constantine's efforts, of the 1,800 or so bishops scattered across the empire, only about 300 made the trek to Asia Minor. Most of these bishops were from the east. There were some Westerners present, maybe about six or seven bishops. Uh, Sylvester, the bishop of Rome, couldn't be bothered to show up. Uh, but he did send a couple presbyters as papal delegates in his stead. And bishops didn't come alone. Uh, they were each permitted to bring with them two presbyters and three deacons. Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, uh, he came with his new deacon, uh, a man named Athanasius. We'll learn more about him next time. So estimates range from 1,200 to 1,900 attendees gathered here in Nicaea to settle this issue. Arius, though he is not a bishop, was commanded to be in attendance and he had a handful of supporters who were there at the council as well. About 17 bishops are reckoned as Arian supporters. Well, bishops began arriving in Nicaea in May of 325. Once Constantine arrived, the council was underway. Entering the innermost hall of the imperial palace, the bishops took their seats. You had... Uh, Tiers of rows set up along either side, kind of like the pews are laid out uh, here in the sanctuary. So tiers of rows set up on either side. Um, they waited in silence as the emperor's company filtered in. Uh, none of them were armed. The, the guards had to stand outside. Uh, weapons were not allowed inside the hall. Then a signal rang throughout the hall. The bishops rose to their feet. And Constantine made his grand entrance. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea describes it. At last, he himself proceeded through the midst of the assembly like some heavenly messenger of God, clothed in raiment which glittered as it were with rays of light, 
reflecting the glowing radiance of a purple robe and adorned with the brilliant splendor of gold and precious stones. He stood out, (laughs) is what Eusebius is saying. One can hardly imagine what it must have been like to be there. The church, which for centuries had suffered under persecution and martyrdom, almost everyone present had known loved ones, teachers, disciples, fathers, and mothers who had lost their life to the Romans for the cause of Christ. Some were present were confessors, meaning that they had endured torture for the cause of Christ, bearing in their own bodies the marks of their faithfulness. One bishop present was missing an eye. He had an eye gouged out. And here they are in the presence of the Roman emperor as he makes his way to the front of the room where a golden chair has been set just for him. And approaching it, he stops and he waits. Only once the bishops had signaled their approval does he take his seat and the others follow suit. Constantine addressed the assembly, again urging them to unity. And now I rejoice in beholding your assembly. But I feel that my desires will be most completely fulfilled when I can see you all united in one judgment and that common spirit of peace and concord prevailing among you all, which it becomes you as consecrated to the service of God to commend to others. Delay not then, dear friends, delay not, you ministers of God and faithful servants of him who is our common Lord and Savior. Begin from this moment to discard the causes of that disunion which has existed among you and remove the perplexities of controversy by embracing the principles of peace. He then called for petitions that he had received from the bishops, complaint after complaint, against one another, and he promptly ordered them to be burned. Christ enjoins him who is anxious to obtain forgiveness to forgive his brother. The message was clear. You aren't going home until we are all agreed. Unfortunately, no official minutes were taken during the council. We have only bits and pieces of information uh, from those who uh, were either present, like Eusebius of Caesarea or Athanasius, or from later historians who are getting their information secondhand. The Arians were clearly in the minority, but as the council debated over exactly how they should articulate their faith, that the Son was like the Father, exactly as the Father in all things, and immutable, and, and always in the Father. Well, Athanasius observed, the Arians present winked and muttered to each other that they could accept these descriptions because they could find parallel expressions to all these applied in Scripture to creatures and not God. But what words, what word could they use that would flush out the Arians and their error? Well, it was at this point Eusebius of Nicomedia, as the leading representative of the Arian faction, stood up to offer a statement of faith to the effect that Jesus was a creation of God the Father, deriding the idea that the Father and the Son were of the same substance or essence the Greek word being homoousios, of one essence. Eustathius, uh, Eustathius of Antioch, uh, one of Alexander's allies at the council, uh, he tells us it was read in the presence of everybody, talking about Eusebius's confession, and immediately produced among its audience a restless sensation of shock and earned indelible shame for its author. But when the cabal of Eusebius' party was openly exposed, the transgressing document was torn up before the eyes of all. This is the word that would get them. Homoousios. The Arians objected, that's not a Bible word. 
you need to beware of people who are so afraid to clearly spell out what it is that they believe and insist instead on only using Bible words. Often this is a ploy used to cloak grievous error and heresy. Even today, many people reject the word Trinity. Why? Because it's not in the Bible. You go to BibleGateway.com, do a little search, Trinity, it's nowhere in the Bible. How can we talk about God as a Trinity if the word Trinity isn't in the Bible? Wouldn't it be great if we could all just use Bible words? Well, guess what? Jehovah's Witnesses, modern-day Arians, they only use Bible words. Mormons, they only use Bible words. Oneness Pentecostals, they all only use Bible words. All of us agree on what the Bible says, textual criticism aside. The real question is, what does the Bible mean? And sometimes it is necessary for us to use extra-biblical words, like homoousios, in order to clearly define what it is that we believe the Bible teaches. And when we consider the history of Christian doctrine, we see that a whole grammar has developed to help us think and speak more clearly and accurately about this doctrine in particular. And yes, it takes work to nail down concepts like essence and subsistence, being and person, eternal relations of origin, affiliation, spiration, inseparable operations, perichoresis. But it is a labor that is well worth the effort. Church, never be content with your knowledge of God. Pursue Him. And not just so that you can win theological arguments, but so that in knowing more of God, you will be drawn closer into union, fellowship, and trust in God. And so a creed was drawn up to express the true biblical orthodox faith. And the creed reads thus. I've got this for you in your, in your outline. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father. Notice, contrary to the Arians, who believed that the Son was begotten ex nihilo, out of nothing, the church affirmed that the Son was begotten of the essence of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same being. There's our word, homoousios. And by the way, if you have any reservations about the word homoousios, this is essentially what John teaches when he says that the word was God. When we say that, uh, uh, that uh, the Father and the Son are of the same essence. What do we mean? We mean that those attributes, those characteristics of deity are true of the Father and they are true equally of the Son. Is God omnipotent, all-powerful? Well, so is the Son. Is God omnipresent, omniscient? Well, so is the Son. We go through the list of all the divine attributes. They are true of the Father, and they are true of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And they're true of the Son, not to a lesser degree or in a similar way, but in the same sense that He is, uh, he is very God of very God. It's of the same being as the Father, through whom all things came to be, both the things in heaven and on earth, who for us humans and for our salvation came down and was made flesh, becoming human, who suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, 
who is coming to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. Well, then followed the anathemas. Uh, An anathema is a statement of condemnation. This is what it said. The Catholic and Apostolic Church condemns those who say concerning the Son of God that there was a time when he was not or he did not exist before he was begotten or he came to be from nothing or who claim that he is of another subsistence or essence or a creation or changeable or alterable. You're not allowed to say any of that. (laughs) In the end, all but two bishops signed their agreement to the creed. Even Eusebius of Nicomedia caved, though he refused to go along with the anathemas. Uh, I'm going to butcher these names. Theonis of Marmarica and Secundus of Ptolemais were the only two who stood beside Arius, and all three of them were excommunicated. And now that the emperor is involved, it's not just excommunication, but it's also exile. You have to go away now. (laughs) Um, Secundus supposedly turned to Eusebius and scolded him. You subscribed in order to avoid exile. As God is my witness, you will have to suffer banishment on my account. Indeed, three months later, Eusebius' support of Arius would come to bite him, and he too would be exiled. In addition, all of Arius' writings were ordered to be burned. Well, we have to mention that the Arian controversy wasn't the only issue on the docket. The council issued 20 canons, rules or regulations regarding various issues. Um, I've put that... Did I bring my... I've put that on the back of your outline. You should see that, the list of the the canons. Um, There's 20 of them. I hope I got all 20 of them on there. I've organized them according to uh, subject, what they deal with. So we're not going to go through any of that. You can go through that on your own time um, and look into some of those things. Some of them are kind of interesting. Um, Regarding various issues, issues like proper ordination, how to reconcile certain schismatic groups with the church, uh, the authority of certain bishops. Um, In addition, the council also issued decrees settling the old quarter-deciman controversy, Some of you might remember that from a long, long time ago when we first started our church history study. That's the issue over when are we going to celebrate Easter? Is it going to be on 14 Nisan uh, as the Jews celebrate their Passover? Or is it going to be some Sunday, some Lord's Day that we're going to celebrate the resurrection? Um, It was determined that the Lord's Day would be the only only day for observing uh, the Christian Pascha. The Miletian schism, uh, which also troubled the Alexandrian church, was addressed. Um, and because of the internet, <laughs> I, have to, I have to say this. Uh, the council did not address at all the issue of the canon of Scripture, no matter what Dan Brown or any other internet troll says. Uh, that was not an issue at the Council of Nicaea. It wasn't even on the radar. So the battle was won at Nicaea, but the war was far from over. What followed was a 60-year-long struggle for orthodoxy, a fascinating drama that is, at its clearest points, dizzyingly confusing. The struggle was so intense that Jerome, who lived through much of it, reflecting on the time, says, the entire world woke from a deep slumber and discovered that it had become Arian. Well, in our next study, we'll see this war unfold, this battle for orthodoxy, as we consider the life of one of Nicaea's most ardent defenders, Athanasius of Alexandria. All right, well, we will conclude our time with some questions. If anyone has any questions uh, about what was presented, yes, yes. This is where uh, St. Nick was, right? The whole controversy? Yeah. Can you comment on that? I sort of. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, this is... Uh, I, I, I left that out because I wasn't able to find a source 
For, but so, so the story goes that uh, Nicholas of Myra was one of the bishops that was present there at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, supposedly, Arius gets up to defend his views. Um, most people, most, I would say, Nicholas of Myra is the most influential bishop in all of history. All of history. Some people know who Athanasius is. A lot of people know who Augustine is. Everyone knows who Santa Claus is. This is, this is Santa Claus. This is the guy, this is the gift giver. He's there at Nicaea. Arius stands up to defend his, his view, and, and Santa is so angry at what he is saying. He goes and he punches him in the face. Um, <laughs> he came to give presents and punch heretics, and he ran out of presents. Um, yeah, so... I, from what I, I'm not sure if that's apocryphal or not, if that actually happened. Um, I, I would need to look into that. I, I couldn't find a source for it, but that, that is a story. I wish we told more stories like that. That's the story, that's the Santa Claus I want. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, good question. Yes. All right, surprise, surprise. I have a few of them, but I'll stick with one. You use the phrase that I think we're all probably familiar with, at least most of us, corridor of time. Is that an, a an actual phrase that was used by Arius? And if so, was he the first one? Is, would he be attributed as the originator of the phrase? Yeah, so that... Um, uh, the, the, I'm, the concept is there. Um, as, unfortunately, when it comes to Arius, we, we really don't have anything... From him, that he—I mean, his his writings were ordered to be burned. The only thing that we have is what's survived from, what what's preserved by his opponents. That's all that we have. So, um, uh, the, the concept is there, um, and uh, I I want to say no. That there, that even origin of of Alexandria. That's how he understands the doctrine of election is this idea that God's looking down the quarter of time. He was radically committed to the Greek philosophical notion of free will. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I probably can't answer that question as sufficiently as, as you would like, but I, I think that there were others who, who kind of had that idea that God is looking down the quarter of time, and that's what election is based off of. Yeah. Yeah. I seem to remember uh, reading, I think it was by uh, MacArthur, he had, he had done an uh, a excerpt about Arius in some book I read, I can't remember the name off, off the top of my head, but uh, I remember him speaking about Arius being in a position where he was able to actually write Christ out of the scriptures in many ways too, and that he had altered gospels. Hmm. Do you yeah. remember, have you heard anything about that? I'm, I'm not familiar with that. No? No. no, no. Yeah. That, he's, he's actually changing the that scriptures? He was actually to, changing the scriptures to, to, uh, uh, to de-deify de Christ. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, of course, we have modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, right, and their, their Bible translation, right, the New World they translation, the thing, yeah. um, where they will purposely insert words um, to try and make it seem that it's not clearly Trinitarian, as the, as the text is. Yeah. Um, so maybe, that, maybe that's what he's alluding to? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. I, I haven't heard that, no. I was just curious. Yeah. The questions or comments? All right, this one might be a little bit more drawn out. And again, if the answer is going to be, or if anybody else knows it, if Thaddeus doesn't, so, uh, wisdom personified, I, I know I get this a lot talking to today's modern-day Arians. Mm -hmm. um, when they try to go there and show me that Jesus was created, right. I always felt it was easier for them to do it with verses. From my understanding, Proverbs was set chapters 1 through 9 before the chapters were actually chapters and verses. Mm -hmm. Throughout Proverbs off the top of my head, in 8, in 3, in chapter 9, wisdom is a she. So 
Did anybody ever challenge Arius on Jesus being a girl? Um, if, if that's talking about, if that is talking about Jesus. Yeah, so, so I think most of the fathers would agree that wisdom personified there in Proverbs is Christ. Um, wisdom, now, someone who knows Hebrew, uh, <laughs> I think wisdom might be a, a, a female word in, in the Hebrew language, and so therefore it would, it would use female uh, feminine pronouns along with it. Um, most, well, it would probably, it would be the same in Greek too. And most of these people are reading the Greek Septuagint. Um, so yeah, uh, they, were, they were generally agreed that, that wisdom in the Proverbs is Christ. Um, but uh, they, they would understand that as a, an eternal relationship that is being spoken of there. Um, and so uh, Alexander would make the point, when was God dumb that he was without his wisdom? That, that, that's the way they would approach um, a text like that. Uh, I, I have heard that argument used by um, modern scholars against that, that use of Proverbs, that it is feminine and therefore it can't be talking about Christ because Christ isn't. Um, uh, I, I don't know if that's the way that, that I, would, I would take that. Um, yeah, go ahead. And that is what I do with the Jehovah's Witness when I talk to them and they take me there. I show them Proverbs 3 early on in Proverbs 8, beginning of Proverbs 9. Right. But I don't want to continue to use it if it is a misunderstanding of how yeah. uh, the, how the uh, Hebrew language works. Yeah. So yeah. maybe I'll dig more into that yeah. before yeah. continuing not, on. Definitely not my area. Uh, I barely know Greek. <laughs> um, but yeah, ask them. I mean... When was God dumb? That doesn't make any sense. Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah. So it sounds like Arius' perspective, his doctrine, comes from a logical conclusion of the begottenness of the Son. Um, did he have particular scriptures that he pointed to that you know of anywhere outside of simply this is all a logical necessity because he is begotten? Did he have any answers to the biblical objections? Um, yeah, do you, are you aware of any of the kind of biblical dialogue around it? Yeah, so again, we, what we have from Arius is scant because his writings were unfortunately burned. Um, that's, that's never a good way to, to deal with uh, you know, heresy like that. You, you kind of want to know what they were teaching from a historical standpoint so that you can better defend against it, but that, that's what happened. Um, uh, so regarding Arius' chief concern was maintaining the unity of God and the oneness of God. Um, and the doctrine of the Trinity sounded way too much like Sabellianism, way too much like uh, you have uh, uh, God existing in three different modes, um, which, was a, which was clearly rejected as heresy for a hundred years prior to Nicaea. Um, and so he's wanting to guard the unity of God. At the same time, he's also wanting to guard the simplicity of God. Um, how can God take on human flesh and not be changed in the process? Um, and so if we imagine that the Son isn't God, but is sort of a lesser divine being, okay, well then we can understand how he could change um, and not impute change or division to God himself. At the same time, Arius conceives of God in the terms of Greek philosophy as the absolutely transcendent one. He is so far removed from us um, that that just how does the how does the incarnation make sense in that in that understanding? Um, and so, uh, yeah, he's he, it's it's on one level it's it's a philosophical argument in which he's wanting to, to defend the unity of God, the simplicity of God, and. 
in some instances, yet stretching the language of Scripture. He's begotten. Therefore, well, when I, was, I wasn't before I was begotten. Therefore, the Son of God. How can he be before he was begotten? That doesn't make any sense. Um, so he's stretching that to its logical, um, it, not even its logical conclusion, as I explained. But yeah. Um, I think he would dismiss. So he would say, when we, we point out that Jesus is the word of God, the wisdom of God. He would say, well, he's called the wisdom of God. He's called the word of God. He's not actually those things. Those are just titles that are given to him. So he would dismiss those passages in that way. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, there, there isn't a lot um, we have going back and forth be- between them. Any other questions or comments? Well, it is, it is 3.15, so let's go ahead um, as we draw our time to uh, uh, close in song uh, as Brother, A- Brother Aaron comes forward to lead us. Uh, let me close us in prayer. Our great and awesome God, the Father everlasting, the Son without beginning, without end, the Alpha and the Omega, And the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our triune God, we come before you and we bow before you, submitting ourselves to the truths that you have revealed in your holy word. Thankful, Lord, that men have, you have raised up men throughout the ages to defend these truths, that we might hold on to them and defend them in the midst of error. And pray, Father, that Uh, This understanding of these historical circumstances would inflame within us a greater passion to know you more, um, to come into greater communion with you and with your Son and with the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we continue our survey of church history. Uh, Help us to be bold in our witness for the truth as the fathers were bold in their day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.